Welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Nerva Reddy. Our brother, Stephen Robles, could not be with us this time, but we do have a special guest, and he's been on our show before. He is a father of four, PhD in theoretical chemistry. We're still trying to figure out right. theoretical that, does chemistry. Does that mean you do some alchemy, Brother Neil? Can you uh, spend some gold for No, it's, it's all in my head. It's all in my head. <laughs> And he's done a lot of work on critical theory. So we welcome back Neil Shinvi to our podcast. Welcome and thanks for being with us again. Thank you so much, guys. So today we're touching on a very sensitive subject, um, one that tends to polarize people and stir up just intense emotions on all sides. And so we're going to do our best to approach this topic with humility, grace, and charity. But we can't ignore this issue because, as we've said before, ideas matter. And ideas have consequences for good or for ill. But before we jump into that, I want to remind our listeners to go today to impact360courses.org and check out their Explore the Resurrection course online. It is amazing. They have exclusive interviews with today's leading researchers on the resurrection of Jesus, over nine different sessions of visually engaging teaching, plus access to hours of exclusive video interviews with leading scholars such as John Lennox, William Lane Craig, Sean McDowell, and Michael Lacona. With Easter right around the corner, this is the perfect time for you to brush up on your understanding of the historical evidence and arguments for the resurrection of Christ. So when you go there, use the coupon code FREEMIND when you check out, and then we'll give you $25 off. You can take it as an individual, or you can get the small group curriculum. You know, in my personal journey, learning this material was probably one of the biggest areas that bolstered my faith that Christianity was actually true. And I'm so thankful that they have a course like this now, man. It really will change your life. It it will be so helpful to your own confidence in Christianity, but it will also give you tools to help others see that it's true. And so I just can't recommend this course enough. Check it out, impact360courses.org. Explore the resurrection. So about two weeks ago, there was a conference put on by Sparrow Women in Dallas, Texas. And the focus of this conference was racial reconciliation and social justice issues that affect culture with an attempt to apply biblical truths to these topics. During the conference, they interviewed a lady by the name of Akimini Yuan, who was named by Christianity Today in 2018 as one of the top 10 new or lesser known female theologians worth knowing. She received her Master's in Divinity from Westminster Theological Seminary, and she goes by the title Public Theologian Anti-Racist. The focus of her interview was whiteness, and she defines whiteness as a power structure that is rooted in plunder, theft, slavery, and enslavement of African Americans, and genocide of Native Americans. This interview ended up being really controversial As she was sharing, several of the audience members got up and walked out. Later on, she noticed that her interview was taken down from the YouTube page, and she had to get her attorneys to retrieve the footage from the conference. Shortly after, a Twitter war broke out with many prominent pastors siding with Yuan, and of course, many people responding on the other side. Yeah, it was getting crazy out there, y'all. And I just want to remind you, too, we did two episodes with Neil previously on critical theory. It'd be worth checking out just to get your foundation. He has a website where he goes in incredible depth on this subject, shinviapologetics.com. We'll also link 
to a teaching by Vodi Bakum that's uh, going to yeah. be really helpful, okay. really good. So, yeah, check those out, and I think it will prepare you to understand, give you the foundations for this topic. I just also want to mention my uh, my friend and collaborator, Dr. Patrick Sawyer. He's a great guy. He has a PhD in cultural studies. Uh, really taught me so much about critical theory, and uh, we are doing a lot of collaboration together. You can check him out on Twitter. But yeah, he's a he's a great collaborator, and he's he definitely has a lot of insight. It's, he really is very knowledgeable about these subjects. Oh, that's awesome, and I'll check that out for sure. Um, so Nerva and I both listened to the interview. Yeah. And, it, uh, you know, it was stirring. It yeah, was stirring. I, I, how did you feel ways. about it, babe? You know, uh, there are parts of her story that I could relate to as being a daughter of Haitian immigrants living in this country and uh, finding your way through culture. But there was definitely some flags that I was like, wow, I've never heard that before. Hmm. Um, brought in that way, in that context. So yeah, Neil, uh, I know you've done a lot of work in this field. We would love to hear your take on her interview. What, let's start with some of the positives. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's great to start there because I don't want to. I think I think I think we're probably. I'm going to be uh, pretty critical of some of the things she said. And so, I, but I want to start by saying this. You know, not everything in the talk was was terrible and awful. There were some very positive things she said. So, uh, for example, you know. She is right that you know race is a social construct. It's not a biblical category. She said that a lot. And you know, while the Bible recognizes ethnicity, uh, gender, family of origin, religion, things like that, but this modern notion of race was uh, an invention of the 16th, 17th centuries, and it really was not innocent. It, you know, it was defined uh, in order to consolidate power within the hands of people of European origin and to justify slavery and. And it really is a fiction. So the, this idea that there are these races of human beings that are almost different species is just, that was, a, I mean, scientists in the 18th and 19th centuries were, they were even saying things like, you know, God created separate human beings. Not they, were not they were all, you know, sons of Adam, but they actually thought this polygenesis theory was that, that he created, you know, black human beings and then separately created white human beings and separately created Asian human beings. And that was their... That was their science back then. They were trying to were trying to justify that why they had this sort of racial caste system in the U.S. So she's right. That's that's not biblical at all. The Bible and modern biology just say race as we understand it as you know this black race, white race thing. There's only one race. There's a human race. Uh, we, you know we're one. We're brothers and sisters uh, in creation. So that's that's all right. That's all that's all correct. Um, she also talked about. The racial history of the U.S. and it is ugly, and I think it needs to be talked about. Um, some people will say, "Oh, you know, why, why dredge up the past? You're just going to inflame, uh, you know, pe make people upset." And I, I think that's not correct because uh, for two reasons. One is that some of these events were pretty recent. So, um, for example, in his book *Woke Church*, mm -hmm. uh, Eric Mason tells a story about how his own father told, as as children, his father recounted how he was dragged out of his own home by police for a crime he didn't commit and was beaten so badly by the police that his, his, his mother couldn't recognize him. And, mm -hmm. and, it's, and so, so Mason, is this is a story that he grew up hearing. And so Mason writes in his book, uh, these and other experiences colored how I was raised to deal with whites, whether Christian or not. Wow. And he said, this is how it works. One generation's pain and fears are passed on to the next doesn't mean that we must repeat the sins of racism and bigotry of the past, but it does mean they impact us in some way. That's on page 77 of Work Church. That was very profound. 
because we think, oh, this is so long ago. But I mean, this is his father telling him these stories. And you can imagine if we don't understand where our black brothers and sisters in Christ are coming from, they, they've experienced racism themselves. They've heard about it from their parents. They're, this is living memory. And so mm-hmm. I, there's a woman in my Bible study um, who, she's a doctor, an obstetrician actually, and she went to a segregated school as a little girl, right? So this is, yeah. this is not like ancient history. This is her. So I think it's important for us to talk about that, and we can it helps us to understand you know, why is there so much residential and school segregation today. It's, it's inexplicable unless you realize it's, it's a legacy of this history of racism we have in this country. So I think all of that, she talked about that in the talk, and it was a, a good thing to talk about. Definitely. You know, and and it's just good to, to remind ourselves of that because we don't talk about it much. And even Seth and I, as we have like family discussions, it's difficult to bring up, you know. And so I appreciate that she was just kind of fearless about it a little bit and then able to just bring it up. And, you know, sometimes the tendency is to sweep it under rug and not sure not talk about it. Um, how important is it like when you're discussing these issues and sometimes if you disagree, you're viewed as someone who's a part of the problem. How important is it to understand the person's framework before you even dive into this topic with someone? Yeah, right. I think we have to ask, you know, are we allowed to critique statements Mm, or if we even raise a concern, even biblical concern and say, I don't think this is actually what scripture teaches. Are are we going to be open to that criticism? Are we going to be allowed to say that? And because if we're not, that's dangerous. You know, I think uh, every, you know, our, our culture is very polarized. Everyone wants to support their team and not make any concessions to the other team. So yeah, but it, as Christians, you know, our team is the church, the body of Christ. Uh, it is not, we're not, it's not, oh, I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, I'm of Apollos, you know. What, no, we're Christians, and we have to submit to Scripture and to the truth, mm. and that means we have to listen to criticism and be willing to give it and take it and receive it, uh, you know, in humility and gentleness. So I just want to make sure that we, um, in what I, when I offer a critique, I want to make sure that, People are people know I'm not doing it out of um, anger or spite. I mean, I think, for example, like I think Sparrow should have left the talk up. Mm-hmm. I think they should not have taken it down. Uh, if you have a speaker and they give a talk and you invited them, and even wow. if you disagree with the content, you should leave it up. And and if you think it's really unhelpful content, well, then all the more reason for people to listen to it and say and and be open to saying, hmm, that doesn't sound quite right. We have to trust our listeners that they can they're going to bring things to scripture and think critically. Uh, yeah, so I, I, you know, so I'm glad that they released it eventually. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I think we should be willing to evaluate the things people say carefully on both sides, and not just be very partisan about it. That's so good. And I think you mentioned on Twitter, you might have tweeted once that you you wanted to refrain from responding at first. Is it? Yeah. A t- was that? Um, give us your thought behind that. Is it? Was it a timing thing? Yeah. I mean, several things. One is that the internet's full of hot takes, right? You, you have something that says something, and then like five minutes later, there's an you know there's a Vox article. It's you know it's about it. <laughs> and I I think we have to resist that temptation and just listen and understand. So I wanted to sure. listen to the talk several mm-hmm. times. I wanted to listen to interviews she'd given since then. I wanted to read her articles that she'd written since then so I could really understand what she's saying before I said anything. Uh, So, you know, the more material you have, uh, the more that you can evaluate it carefully and and charitably. And so I I did that. So I, you know, I I listened to the talk. I read the articles. I read her tweets. I listened to her interview on Pass the Mic. So I felt 
now I feel more comfortable saying, I think I understand what she's saying. And now I can kind of evaluate it. Oh, man, that's so responsible. The more <laughs> material you have, the better you're able to respond. And um, that's so good. Okay, so let's dive into the interview. What do you see going on here? Yeah, uh, I think the, the first thing you have to understand is some background. So we talked about critical theory, you mentioned at the beginning of the, 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 this, ta- this uh, podcast. And we really have to understand critical theory in order to understand the talk. Um, because, and I'll, I'll me just to me defend that, people say, people kind of get are skeptical. They say, oh, this critical theory thing, it's this boogeyman invented by conservative Christians to shut down conversations about race and social justice. It's not a real thing that actually is influencing evangelical Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sometimes called the cultural Marxism. I don't like that term, but, but it's out there. Um, I, I, I just think it's this talk, it's just so clear that this is uh, rooted in critical theory. And so how, why do I say that? Well, of the, she mentioned five books at the end of the talk, recommended these books for people wanting to learn more about the talk. Uh, the, and four out of the five books were works of critical theory. So let me just start out with Robin DiAngelo. Robin DiAngelo wrote White Fragility, and on her website, she calls herself a critical race and social justice educator. Her paper on white fragility, uh, she coined that term, it was published in the International Journey of Critical Pedagogy. These are all, this is critical theory. And she's probably the most well-known critical theorist in the in the U.S. today. She goes on tours and speaks at colleges, writes pieces for the Huffington Post, does videos. So uh, what about some other two, two other people? So she mentioned Nell Irvin Painter, who's a historian. And here's what Painter, who, whom she recommended, Here's what Painter says about the other two authors that the Yuan recommended. That's uh, David Rodiger and Noel Ignatiev. This is what Painter says about them. Critical white studies began with David R. Rodiger's The Wages of Whiteness in 1992 and Noel Ignatiev's How the Irish Became White in 1995. So those two works that she recommended are being called the, the, the origin, the original works of critical white studies. And, and then Rodiger in his own words, he says in his paper, the paper is called Accounting for the Wages of Whiteness. He writes this about his own work and that field. He says, this article argues that the major works launching the critical historical study of whiteness, especially those of Theodore Allen, Alexander Saxton, and Noel Ignatiev, another author that she mentioned, they represented generations of specifically Marxist thought about race. The Wages of Whiteness shared those Marxist origins and joined others in the emerging field in being decisively influenced by black radical scholars. So there's no question here. So this field is known as critical white studies. It's mentioned in uh, Delgado and Stefanczyk's Critical Race Theory introduction. They have a whole section on critical white studies. This is critical theory. I think there's no... Now, you could say, well, it's no big deal. Critical theory is compatible with Christianity. You could argue that. What you can't argue, I think, is that this is not critical theory. Um, so, so I think that's really important because I do get that pushback is that this is much about nothing. And there's no critical theory influencing the church. And I think this is pretty clear. Um, but then second, I think, I, and, uh, hear me carefully here. I'm not trying to poison the well. I mean, clearly, I think critical theory and Christianity are fundamentally incompatible. But I'm not making the argument. I'm not poisoning the well. I'm not trying to say, you know, uh, Akemeni endorses critical theory, or the works at least. Um, critical theory is bad, therefore Akemeni's talk is bad. I'm not saying that. I'm just trying to say this is critical theory. Uh, I'm going to focus on what she actually says. But I think it's important to recognize that she's 
that she's making use of critical theory because the terminology she uses is technical language. If you don't understand critical theory, you'll misunderstand what she's saying. So actually, it will help you understand what she's actually trying to communicate if you understand the sources that she's drawing upon. Does that mm. make sense? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's for sure. Definitely makes sense. Yeah. Such good background. Okay, so on your website, you have a glossary of words related to critical theory. Yes. And on that list, it's got words like white supremacy, white fragility, racism. And I noticed that since this controversy, you've added whiteness to the list. Can you tell us a little bit about her use of this term and whether you think it's helpful? Or not? Right. It's interesting because I, I think this was clearly the major point of controversy on the internet, at least in social media, is whether, how is she using the term whiteness? Is it okay. appropriate? And people really thought this, I mean, they recognized this was an important point. So Pastor Dwight McKissick, uh, he said this on Twitter. Okay. He, and he's, you know, he's supporting Yuan very strongly. But he said this, if whiteness referred to the Caucasian race, then her statement, Yuan's statement, was racist, divisive, evil, wicked, and wrong. I denounce it. So he said that. Okay. <laughs> but he said this. He said, if, but if whiteness is used in her statement, refer to the spirit that drove Charlottesville, Aryanism, Hitler, slavery, Jim Crow, ebony glass ceilings, in general, white supremacy then, that's what she meant, then there's a great body of historical facts to back her claim. So he's saying... It all turns on how she's using this word. If she's using it uh, to mean white people, the white, white skin color, white uh -huh. skin color, then that is evil and racist. But if she's using it to refer to white supremacy, then it's then it's historically valid, right? Gotcha. So it really matters how this term is defined. Now, and so so the question is, well, is it how is she defining it? Number one. Yeah. And number two. Is it appropriate to define the word that way? And, and so let me talk about both of those issues. I think I'll do the second one first. So gotcha. Uh, critical race. So I talk in my glossary. It's called an anti-racism glossary. So anti-racism is not the same thing as critical theory, but it draws heavily on critical theory. But they uh, anti-racists, modern anti-racists, have have redefined a lot of words like whiteness, white supremacy, racism. That does not mean if you look up the dictionary, these words do not. They're using the words in a way that does not match their dictionary definition. Uh, so, and, and now, why is that important? Well, that's a big rhetorical problem. Because if we redefine words, they can have rhetorical force even if we mean something that they don't, we don't think they mean. So here's an example. Um, you can use morally charged words to get buy-in to your cause. So, for example, think about how people have redefined words like bigot, equality, tolerance, hatred, anti-LGBT, anti-choice. So these words all have very strong moral connotations, but they've been redefined. And so you can ask people, well, you believe in equality, right? And they, oh yeah, man, of course I do. Well, they've redefined what equality means. And so now you've bought into this term and they can slowly import new meanings to things. They can say, well, equality means this. You know, oh, wait a minute. So I can either go back and say, no, I denounce equality. You don't want to say that. Or I can just accept that, okay, I guess I have to accept these other ideas too because I've, I've bought the package of equality. And I'm, this is not progressives only. I mean, conservatives do it too. You think about words like unpatriotic, un-American, right? No one wants to be called unpatriotic. So you can get people to say, oh, I'm a patriot. Oh, good, then you believe in X, Y, and Z. Wait a minute, wait a minute, I didn't say that. So we have to be very careful not to redefine words in Un, uh, in unusual ways in order to get a sort of, a t to manipulate our, our opponents, right? And um, 
And a good example of someone who's doing this right now is Robin D'Angelo. I'll, I'll just be frank. Okay. So if you read her book, White Fragility, she uses this very charged language, morally charged language. Uh, so she'll say things like, uh, well, she'll, okay, so she'll say things like, you know, all whites are socialized into a racist ideology. And if you disagree with that statement, then you're fragile. You're, you're demonstrating your white fragility. Mm. So you can either agree with her that you're racist, but if you disagree with her, then you're fragile. So you're really in this double bind. Uh, a, a, an atheist named James Lindsay, who does a lot of work on critical theory, too, he's, a, he's, a, he's an atheist. He's not a Christian, so he doesn't share my worldview at all. But he calls these Trojan horse terms because you, you smuggle people things into the conversation that are only unpacked later. Um, so, it, so that's why I think um, we have to be very careful about how we're using these words uh, that people don't understand exactly what they mean, and therefore there's confusion or even offense. Um, and then, okay, so then the question becomes, well, what about the word whiteness here? So, um, Yeah, can you recap the way she uses the word? Yes. In so in the interview, she says uh, whiteness, she defines whiteness as a power structure. And she says whiteness is rooted, like you said, rooted in slavery, uh, genocide. Whiteness is wickedness. It is wicked. It is rooted in violence, theft, plunder, power, and privilege. Now, the dictionary defines whiteness as the state of being white or the state of you know, having probable European ancestry. So it's a morally neutral term. But she's not using the word whiteness to mean that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in her um, April 9th interview on the Pass the Mic podcast, she actually says whiteness is, is interchangeable with white supremacy. She says that. She says you can use those terms, whiteness and white supremacy, interchangeably if you want to. This is actually at... 2928 to 2940, there's a timestamp. So you want to listen to her interview. She says whiteness and white supremacy are interchangeable terms. Wow. Well, so she's not saying, she's not saying that having white skin is violence. She's not saying having white skin or having European ancestry is wickedness. She's not saying that. Okay. But she's using the word whiteness to mean, she's saying white supremacy is wicked. Now, now, the thing is, would you disagree? Of course I'd agree with that. Yeah, white supremacy <laughs> is wickedness, but she's using a different word for it. And so the question is, well, well okay, so what's the deal here then? Well, here's, that, here's the problem, I would say. Imagine making an analogy to the term blackness. <laughs> blackness as a category was invented along with whiteness. It was invented to devalue and demean image bearers, to deny groups their civil rights, to claim that, to say that they were lesser of lesser value. So blackness had all those connotations. It was invented for that purpose. I agree, historically. But here's the problem. Imagine I went up to a conference and made a statement like this. Blackness is unbiblical. Blacks need to divest from blackness. Blackness is a demeaning concept that was created to, uh, to oppress people, and therefore, if you're invested in blackness, you need to repent and repudiate blackness. Now, if I said that and black people were confused or offended, would we accuse the people that were offended and walked out of fragility? No, we'd say, hey, yeah. that's a terrible term to use. You can't use the term that way. You're going to confuse or offend people. And so I think that's why I'd say, okay, I understand that she's redefining the term and in a way that's compatible with critical theory, but that is a bad way to redefine the term. In fact, it's a, it's an, it's an inappropriate way. It gives the totally wrong message, and it can be used, and it can be used in a very 
um, manipulative way. And it is by people like Robin D'Angelo. And so I think that we should not define the term that way. Um, so I think, but, but here's the thing. I, I think that we, and I, I'm open to discussion. If people say, no, I think it's fine to use the term that way. Uh, okay, we can discuss that. But I actually think that that was, although it was a focus of sort of media and social media uproar, it was, I think, not the most important controversy in this talk. So we can talk about the other things, too, that I think are even more important. Sure, sure. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because when I hear the word white supremacy, I mean, I automatically think of like leaders of the KKK Pulaski, or Tennessee. people oh, that were yeah. very, you know, <laughs> it has, but it has so evolved. So I think it's good to um, understand that these words have new meaning and in critical theory, they have their own definition. So if you're speaking with someone who's immersed themselves in that literature and that ideology, then it, the conversation could be fruitless. Yeah, and I have to also interject here that white supremacy has also been redefined. So even though she yeah. says whiteness and white supremacy are interchangeable, well, they are yeah. uh, in her worldview mm-hmm. or in her, in her terminology, um, but she's also redefined white supremacy. So it's not in, in anti-racist literature, white supremacy does not refer to uh, the clan. I mean, it refers to them too, but yeah. it refers to something much broader than sure. just yeah. overt racism and hatred and bigotry and cross-burning. It, it refers to this entire system of subtle racial mm-hmm. oppression and ideology, and it's 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 a very complicated term. You look at my website, but it's you should be careful. Again, even white supremacy, racism, uh, the, uh, white fragility. These ideas have different meanings uh, in this in anti-racist speech. Mm. Yeah, man, that's really helpful. Uh, do you mind taking a moment here just to give us a quick recap of what critical theory is, just in case we have some listeners who don't have any background with it? I think it might help us have a framework for what we're talking about here. Yeah, so really quickly, um, critical theory, I'll just use two two basic core principles. So critical theory divides the world into oppressed groups and their oppressors along axes of race, class, gender, physical ability, age, and so forth. And then who you are as an individual is inseparable from whether you're an oppressor or an oppressed group along these different categories. So that's the first principle. So you don't talk about, you know, as a, say, if I, I, I'm a half Indian male, you, Seth, you're a white male, you know, as a white male, that's, that's inseparable from who you are. So your claims, the claims that you make are the claims of a white, they're white male claims. And so, and how you view the world as, as a white male. And, and then it'll get into then questions of like, well, then uh, since you're part of an oppressor group, you're blind to truths that can be only accessed by oppressed people. So Nerva, your wife, you know, who's not a white male, uh, has access to truths that you don't have access. You have to just listen to her. You can't challenge her claims because she has this epistemological advantage. She can see truth that you can't see. So that's one. That's a big, big implication. There is you have to just center and platform the ideas of oppressed and marginalized groups because uh, and they have a unique insight. And then the other sort of major claim would be that um, how do oppressed groups exercise, uh, oppressor groups exercise their power and oppression? Well, they do it through a hegemonic power. Hegemonic power means the ability to impose their ideology, their norms, their values, and so forth on culture. So it's not that they're necessarily like putting a gun to people's heads throwing chains around their feet and, you know, and abusing them. So they have this really insidious, subtle ideology that justifies their power. So if you ask them, say, well, you know, why do you have power? Uh, they'll say, oh, you know, it's because of this and this, and we're superior in these ways, so we deserve to have power. 
And so the, the critical theorists are engaged in, they call it deconstructing these narratives. They, get, they deconstruct mm-hmm. these, these claims that are made by these powered, these impressor groups that, that justify their power. They, you know, they see through those claims and then try to overturn these power relationships between oppressed groups and oppressors. So that's, in, in a nutshell, that's what critical theory is. Mm. You know, uh, growing up, um, even on the south side of Chicago in a Haitian family, that's one of the things she, listening to her interview, caused me to kind of revisit my journey as a Haitian American. But I remember um, just feeling different. We knew that we were different. We were different even from black Americans. We dressed different. We had different food. We had accents. But I also remember um, being in high school and there were a group of girls behind me that were making fun of my dark skin. And so they had uh, made up this little chant. And once I realized that they were making fun of me, I froze because it was very hurtful because they bought into the lie that lighter complexion skin was beautiful and darker complexion skin was was not beautiful. And so but fast forward years and years later, um, I was uh, spending a summer in New York and my cousin invited me to this block party. And that was my first time ever hearing there was a hip hop group called the Fugees. And oh yeah! Oh yeah! Mm-hmm. And so I one of the Fugees, yeah. yeah, so one of the members was a uh, Haitian. His name's Wyclef Jean, and yeah, I'll yeah. never forget. He got on the microphone and he said, um, "Is Brooklyn in the house?" And everybody was cheering <laughs> and responding. And then he said, "Is Queens in the house?" And then he finally said, "Are the Haitians in the house?" And the place went wild. And I was <laughs> like, "Oh my gosh!" That was my first time ever hearing someone give props to the Haitian community mm. and really celebrating the culture. And I tell you, I almost elevated off the floor. It was so much yeah. fun. But there's something to um, celebrating culture and really taking pride in who you are and in your upbringing and your sure. ethnic background. And that's one of the points I really appreciated about mm-hmm. her interview. Mm-hmm. But Seth and I recently heard this message by Vodi Bakum, and he made an analogy of a road with a ditch on each side. And on the one side with the ditch is a person who is colorblind and does away with all ethnicity, doesn't acknowledge any kind of cultural background. And on the other side, you put all emphasis on ethnicity and who you are in culture almost to a point where it's an idol. Yeah. But with her, do you think she has a balanced approach to ethnicity from a biblical perspective? Yeah, well, let me just add to I, I agree sure. with what you said. So I think that and they used to mention people who kind of want to wash away all their culture and just have a this totally cultureless approach to the to Christianity. Well, I think that's just not just like uh, undesirable. That's that's not that's not possible, right? You you do have a culture. You, you just do. And I think if if you think that well, we don't have culture in our church, like well, you're just blind to the culture you have. That's all. I mean, you sing songs in some language, right? You totally. you sing certain kinds of songs. So it's just really. I think I think she's right to point out that uh, that you know and uh, you know I'll be, I'll just say it. I think. White people can think because they're the majority culture. Mm-hmm. They're like, well, this is just the way that you do things. This is just the songs you sing. You listen to, you know, contemporary Christian music, and and you have a guitar on stage, and you you, know, you wear skinny jeans. And, it ain't, it ain't worship culture. if it doesn't have an electric, brother. Come on. <laughs> so That's right. Yeah, yeah. So I think now That's now hilarious. I'd hope I'd hope that no one's quite that uh, naive about the fact that yeah, you have a culture, and it's you know that. It's not like you you drop you know you drop a person from a, a cultureless church you know I don't know wherever in Nebraska you drop them into a you know a, a, a church in China or in Mexico or in Southside Chicago you know preach yeah and they're gonna realize quickly 
oh yeah, I have a culture after all, right? Like, cause this is, this, what they're doing is different. Yeah. And I think we should not be naive and think we have no culture. There's no, you can't have a, there's no such thing as a cultureless church. However, Christianity transcends culture. That's the point. So we will be very careful in saying, okay, we, like you said, there's a, a ditch on both sides. You're going to, I think the word that, um, you want to use is you express Christianity through your culture. I think you'd be careful there, but what she's saying, I think was that, you know, the, the way that you praise God, the music you use, the way that you, um, the, you know, the style of uh, the music that you sing and things like the food you eat, you're doing it all to the glory of God. And there are going to be things in every culture you have to test against scripture and say, actually, this part of my culture is not very good. I got I rid of this. But other parts of your culture that are either not, not moral issues like, the, you know, the food you eat, or, or they're actually good. They're, they're, they're things that God has blessed and uh, they're reflections of God's glory. And so we should affirm those parts. Uh, but, but Christianity is not um, bound to any one culture. Be very careful not to, uh, on either side, to, say, to, say, to put our culture on par with Christianity, um, either by saying, again, that we don't, oh, we don't really have culture at all. Yeah, you do. Or by saying that, yeah, we do have a culture and we're going to sort of idolize that culture and make it even sort of central to who we are as Christians. So yeah, let me talk about, that was one of my points. Let me try to dig it up here. So sure. um, one of the questions I had to, to, to Yuan, I guess, would I, if I would have had to talk to her and ask her in dialogue, I would want to say, well, how central is ethnic identity for a Christian? How, how central should it be for a Christian? Yeah. And I had trouble sort of figuring out where she was on this issue. So for example, she says, um, she says this. So I, I, you know, her whole, whole, whole theology of ethnicity, I thought, was confusing. So here's what she says to, to white women. She says, to white women, you have to divest from whiteness because what happened was that your ancestors actually made a deliberate choice to rid themselves of their ethnic identity. And by doing so, they actually stripped Africans in America of their ethnic identity. So I can say, sit here and say, uh, I will be a Bibio. So you should, uh, this is her tribal ancestry yeah. in, in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. She, I will be a Bibio in the new heavens and new earth. But you, Elizabeth, can't yet say that. But in my sanctified imagination, I believe that God will give you and my sisters, according to the flesh, uh, they'll be given ethnic identities in the new, they'll be given, listen, they'll be given their ethnic identities in the new heavens and new earth. Hmm. I believe that right deep down in my core, I believe that and I pray to that end. And then again, she said, um, you know, the goal for you all, again, white people, is to recover what your ancestors deliberately discarded. So that means return to whatever that ethnic identity is. Are you Italian? Are you Irish? Are you Polish? Are you Turkish? Whatever that was, you have to work, do that work to find out what that is, pull into that, learn what that cultural heritage is, to celebrate that. Hmm. And that, I was just confused here for a couple of reasons. So first of all, she seems to be arguing that whites, you know, really did cast off their ethnicities. They ha- so they have no ethnicity now. Yeah. Because they've embraced this racial category, which is not a biblical category, I agree. They've embraced race now over ethnicity. So they have no ethnicity. And they're going to have to be given ethnicities that were stripped from them by their ancestors in the new heavens and new earth. Now, that, now here's the thing. Earlier in the talk, she defines ethnicity as a shared heritage and a shared language. She defines it that way, mm-hmm. primarily. Well, don't whites in the U.S. have those mostly? Like, white, yes, white person. Well, what do you? Sh- like, well, my, you know, my great great grandfather came here, you know, and but I, they can they can talk about where they lived, they where city they came from, the best food you can eat in Philadelphia, the best cheesesteaks. White people have a shared heritage in the U.S. and they share a language. 
and they share cultural things like, you know, music and burgers and fries and barbecues sure. and all the American, you know, go to, go to France. They don't, have, they don't right. have American ethnicity over there. So I'd say, well, isn't, aren't white people Americans? Isn't that ethnicity at this point? So that seems strange. And, and then I, I have to ask her, like, you know, she's got to recover your, your, your ethnic ancestry. Uh, well, how far back do you go here? Because, you know, you got white people that are, you know, 6%, they're, you know, 6% Dutch, 13% British, 13% German, 25% French. Uh, are they, what, what ethnicity are they? They're, they're American, I think. At this point, they're just American. They, they're white Americans, I guess, but that's an ethnicity. And if you go to, again, if you go to France, or you go to England, or you go to, you know, uh, uh, Russia, or you go to Zimbabwe, or you, go to, you go anywhere else in the world, China, you'll realize, oh yeah, I'm an American. I have an American ethnicity. So it's weird that she would suggest we have to go back to like, who knows how many, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm half Indian. I'm a, I'm half Gauda Saraswat Brahmin. Mm. So is that my ethnic identity? I mean, do I, and what if I mean, the, the, the GSBs came, we think maybe from this, these Aryan invaders in 1500 BC. So do I really have this, you know, you know, 3000 year old ethnic identity that I have to recover now? What, what, what language do I speak? I, so this all just seems very, very confused to me. Um, and then, and so, and then the second thing, then, okay, this is a, okay, I have a, sure. I see this. I have to wonder then, what do you do about inter-ethnic marriage? Ooh, right. So you guys are you know, inner, inner ethnic, right? You white sure. and black marriage. I'm half Indian. And so if she's saying that you know, ethnicity is so central to how God created you, it's like, it's like she compares it to gender. She can, and she's not saying it is gender, but she compares it to gender. Well, I wouldn't want to be 50% male and 50% female. I wouldn't want my kids to be half and half. I, you know, they have these God-given genders. So is she, I mean, she's not saying this, but, and clearly she's a, I don't think, I, for a second, I don't, uh, she's not denying that interracial marriage is okay. She's not, she's clearly going to affirm that. Mm-hmm. But I have to ask you, if, if ethnicity is so important, then, then would you discourage people from marrying other ethnicities because they're kind of like, they're changing what God created? It's so beautiful, this ethnicity, this shared language and ancestry. What do you do? You end up, uh, in the U.S., we have all this interracial, intermarriage among whites, certainly, um, you're diluting this pure ethnicity. And so mm-hmm. I, I think it's just, a, so I get, I, I clearly want to be clear here. I don't, I, I don't, I, there's no chance that she's saying interracial marriage is wrong. There's no chance. But how does that fit with her emphasis on the beauty of these ethnicities? You can't keep 8 billion, you know, or, you know, by the time you have like four generations of interracial, interethnic marriage, you've got 16 ethnicities. You can't celebrate all of them, right? So, so what do you do there? That's, right, right. You know, that's confusing to me. You're right. I think her approach to ethnicity just leads to a lot of unsolvable problems. Mm. What I also found interesting was her response to the scripture, Galatians 3.28, that says there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free. And she, she makes mention of how she felt this scripture has often been used to suppress people from really diving into talking about these topics. Yeah, she said that's a way that people use to sort of yeah. erase erase you know, black identity and, yeah. and minority identity. And uh, you know, you know, we're all colorblind here, mm-hmm. which is, you know, and people have called that, I mean, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I think she's said it, but people have called it heretical. Colorblind theology is heretical. Yeah. Um, I thought that was and again, you have to be careful here because if they're, if they're, if people are saying, oh, they're, you know, in, in Christ, they're, so Christians should have no culture. Well, that's just foolish because we all have a culture, but I think no one's saying that people are just saying, I think they should be saying well, our, our ethnic identity, our cultural identity, uh, compared to our Christian identity, 
yeah. is is in it fades into insignificance. I'm not saying it's not there, but it's so demoted in importance that that's why Paul says there's no Jew or Greek slave or free. And so I think you run there. So one thing I a question I had too about you know aside from this question of the centrality of ethnicity, mm-hmm. um, I mean, how she understands it. What do you do with say people that are you know a, a quarter all these different things, one sixteenth all these different things? Sure. The other question I would have is like, you know. I think the Bible, when it talks about ethnicity, it, actually the, the main thing it talks about in the New Testament is Jew and Greek. And the funny thing is that you know Jews and ethnicity, but Greek just means everybody else. You know, Paul talks about Jew and Greek. Paul's lumping in all kinds of people as Greeks or Gentiles. Yeah, right? Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Gentiles. I mean, it's, it translates. It depends how, you, how but it's translated. Sure. But but he's lumping all those people, all these ethnicities, into one category, basically non-Jew. And doesn't seem to think it's a big deal. And he, he talks about that Jew and Greek tons. He doesn't talk about all the ethnicity of the Roman Empire. It's just not a central category. Now, I'm not saying it's not a category at all, but it's not central. Uh, the, yeah. the, the, the New Testament talks primarily about how these all of these divisions are broken down. It does not make this a central category to understanding ourselves. Uh, and so for Christians, I would say that... Um, and it was a, this is interesting, too. So Paul actually talks about it. Paul's Jewish, and there's more than just ethnicity there. There's a religious history, too, that's very important. Paul, you know, Paul boasts about being a Jew. He says it's a, very, it's, it's a, it's a great thing to be Jewish because you received the oracles of God. You've given, given the prophets. But then it's funny because there's several things. So in, in Philippians 3, Paul talks about being Jewish, and he says, I consider it as rubbish. Mm-hmm. It's actually it's this Greek scubula, which it's, it's a, not a very nice word, <laughs> Uh, to be honest, but but he says, compared to being in Christ, my Jewishness, my ethnicity, my religious identity is trash. It's rubbish. It's dung. And I think that's basically the. I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not saying that ethnicity doesn't matter. I'm not saying it's not a category in the Bible. I'm saying that it's just rubbish compared when compared to our identity in Christ. And I think that's really important that you have to bring that out if you want to say you know we shouldn't be. We shouldn't ignore culture. We shouldn't pretend it doesn't exist. We should celebrate the good things about cultures. That's all fine. But as soon as you begin to make it sort of a central part of your identity, that that doesn't seem to square with what the Testament teaches. So good. Mm. That's really good. Yeah, so one of the things that stood out to me in this interview and in some other of the talks we listened to by her is that I walk away feeling like, man, there's even more obstacles now to reconciliation and unity and I know that she says truth is a hammer, and she often says truth divides. Um, and I think there, you know, that's true that, you know, truth can divide and it can be offensive. And sometimes we have to say the hard thing. But the problem is, error also divides. <laughs> and so the question is, is what are we dealing with here? Is this truth or error? And and as you're maintaining and arguing. There is some truth, but there are some major errors that are central to her thesis and what she's trying to That's put right. forth here. So true. And you know, it kind of reminds me of when I was a kid. These uh, traveling evangelists and so-called prophets would come into our little church, you know, and they'd be preaching. And if you didn't accept everything, you know, they were like, "That's because you're in rebellion and you're not listening <laughs> to the Spirit." And we're oh. like, uh, "Nah, brother, that's because you just spit out three heresies in that last paragraph wow. without arguing for one of them." <laughs> And, uh, you know, sometimes that's just an easy kind of trick to assume that, you know, yeah, because y'all are offended. That's because I'm telling the truth. And, you know, so that's a problem. But 
The other thing is, even if we bracket that out for now and we say, you know, yeah, you know, what she's saying is right and good. Um, it seems to me that her method of bringing her message is actually unnecessarily creating obstacles mm. to our calling to walk out unity. And so this was a racial reconciliation conference, and yeah. I'm not sure how she's helping us work toward mm. that goal. Yeah, well, and part of the, you have to remember that the anti-racist, the sort of fundamental definition of anti-racism would be the anti-racists are concerned with active dismantling of the structures of white supremacy. I so see. active, the hero, active, okay. and structures. And so, uh, and many people um, that would consider themselves evangelical anti-racists have, have made this point that it's, it's not enough for you to be non-racist. You have to be anti-racist. So they are, so she, what she would say, I think, I'm not going to put words in her mouth, but I think yeah. what she would say is that she's not trying to divide people Okay, what, but 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 her message will divide because she's trying to call you into anti-racism, and if you refuse to become an anti-racist, you will divide yourself from the anti-racists. And I think again, I'm not putting words in her mouth, but I think that's that would fit in with the call to anti-racism. Um, that they they are calling people. Okay, um, so in a sense, in in, in this message, so she's writing, she's talking to Christians, right? Christians. Mm -hmm. So she's not calling them into church. She's not okay. calling them into the body of Christ. Gotcha. So she's not trying to unify us around the body of Christ. So that's not her role. So, okay, that's fair. Um, but she would say, I think, that she's calling people into the anti-racist movement. And so it's going to feel divisive because people that don't want to be in the anti-racist movement feel like they're being left out. And I think she would probably say, that's right. I don't, you know, I'm not going to, she said in one of her, uh, her articles, I don't play patty cake with white supremacy. So she's here to bring division between white supremacists and, again, the redefine, that term is being defined differently, but she wants to bring division between the people that are, that are still holding on to whiteness, the people that are divesting from it. Um, so that, maybe that's why you felt the division, but I think it's not, not necessarily, I mean, she said that she, she, she came to divide, in a sense, into these whiteness and anti-racist camps then would under her definitions there would would white christians by default be white supremacists okay so that is that that is well I'll, yeah so that's the big question so <laughs> wow he, okay so here's the thing so the main defense that i saw on social media the one that people that she was saying and the other people were saying about her they said look she's she's using the word whiteness differently she does not mean white people. She does not mean white skin. She does not mean European ancestry. She does not mean that. The dictionary says that, but it's not what she means. She's defining whiteness as white supremacy. And that's you know defined according to anti-racist. But okay. So she's saying that. I say, okay, let's let's grant that. That's when she used this word whiteness, I know I wouldn't use that word. I think it's a misleading word, but she meant white supremacy. Well, okay, but look, that only pushes the problem back one step. Because the next question to ask is. Are all white people invested in white supremacy by default? Because you're saying, oh, she's not impugning all white people. She's impugning whiteness. Okay, is whiteness the default investment of white people? Now, Yuan didn't ex explain that in the talk. She didn't say explicitly, yes, all white people or most white people are invested in whiteness. 
But if you look at D'Angelo, Robin D'Angelo was recommended by you at the end of the talk. Here's what Robin D'Angelo writes in her book, which was recommended. She writes of herself, who she's an she's an anti-racist educator. She travels the country, you know, preaching. She's not a Christian, but she preaches anti-racism. As far as I know, she's not a Christian, but she, that's her job. Okay. But she writes of herself, D'Angelo, because I was socialized as white in a racism-based society. I have a racist worldview, deep racial bias, racist patterns, and investments in the racist system that elevated me. And she goes on to say that she, that D'Angelo says she has not yet become non-racist and probably never will be. This is D'Angelo talking, okay? So in D'Angelo's view, I think it's fair to say that the vast majority, if not all, of white people are deeply invested in whiteness. Okay, now... So when so, I think it's so based on that citation she's recommending about D'Angelo. I think that a person in the audience who's read D'Angelo w- could be forgiven for thinking that when Yuan says whiteness is wicked, she's talking about a concept that all white people need to repent of. Okay, now now you could say okay, so I could say well wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute maybe D'Angelo thinks that maybe D'Angelo thinks that all white people are racist, but Yuan never said that. She never said they all need to repent of white and whiteness. He didn't say that, so that's your you're, you're reading into that. But well, here's the problem I have. So if you listen to why I kind of waited, you have to look at Yuan's tweets after the talk. Oh. So when the talk was taken down, mm-hmm. uh, and the and the and the Sparrow Conference issued an apology, here's what Yuan tweeted. She said, "This is not an apology. This is a terrible PR cleanup job and a terrible one at that." So here's what she said. This is key. I went into that racist space and did what I was supposed to do, tell the truth as a fully embodied black woman. Instead of being thanked for truth, I shared in grace and love. Rachel Joy, director of Sparrow, has chosen to withhold my pictures and video in violation of my contract. I had to hire an attorney to get what is mine. Release my photos and videos to me immediately. Again, this is important. She nor her racist organization are sorry for their mistreatment. So in these tweets, Yuan explicitly calls the Sparrow Conference a racist space and a racist organization. And she's not just speaking about Rachel Joy, the director here. The entire space and the entire organization are racist. So so let me go on. So then in her, she went on an interview um, called pa- uh, Pass the Mic as a Podcast from by Jamar Tisby and um, uh, what's the other guy? Ah, Tyler, what's his last name? Uh, I can't believe I'm forgetting. I'm sorry. Well, anyway, she went on the, pa- the Pass the Mic podcast uh, and uh, on April 9th. And she was asked by the hosts about what, what's your ministry about? What do you do as your ministry? And so she begins talking about the Sparrow Conference. She mentioned the Sparrow Conference, the Women's Conference, you know, and then and her other ministry. And she talks about how she does these ministries in white spaces. Okay, this is at twenty one fifty four in the interview. And she, Tyler Burns, I'm sorry, it was Ty- Tyler Burns and Jamar Tizio. I'm sorry about that, Tyler, You're totally if you're listening. <laughs> mm-hmm. So here's what she says, talking. This is in the, all in the same answer, talking about her ministry, Sparrow Conference, going to white spaces. She says this: "I'm going in with a mission." Uh, with on two ends to affirm black people and to speak the truth about racism to white people and give them a way uh, of change or transformation, repentance from racism through the power of the gospel. Okay. Then again, a little later, a minute later, she says, 
this. She says, me entering into a white racist space, that's the same word she used to describe the conference, me entering into a white racist space is an act of love because, and this work is very dangerous, I'm putting my life on the line every time I do that. This is not a game. My life is actually on the line when I go in. I take that risk. This is at 2342 to 2600. Um, so, yeah. I don't, so, okay, given all those statements, I don't think you can reasonably say that she's not impugning all white people, not just you know, white people, not just white Christians, but she's talking about white Christians who are spending their weekend at a racial reconciliation conference. <laughs> and she thinks these people are part of a racist space and that going in, going before them, uh, she's putting her life on the line when she does that. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. here, here's the question. So I don't, I don't, I can't, I don't know how to interpret those, the statements in the talk, plus those tweets, plus that interview, and not come away thinking that she believes that all, that at least the majority of the white people she's talking to are racist and invested in whiteness, which is wickedness. Am I seeing this wrong? I don't see how I could else, I could meaningfully interpret those statements. Yeah, I mean, neither that, can I, honestly. Yeah, yeah, I think you're dead on with that. I don't know how to get out of that. Yeah. So, so, and the, oh, here's the thing. So, 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 if that's the case, then mm-hmm. I don't think you can simply say, "Well, she's just critiquing whiteness." Ooh, that's a good. Well, point. no, but she thinks whiteness is something that all white people, or at least again, the majority of the people that are hearing her are are invested in, and whiteness is wickedness. It's rooted in violence. You have to repent of it. So. Again, so and here, here's my question, though. Here, so listen. Either those claims are true, or they are false. <laughs> if those claims are true, if the conference is racist and the the people that it's a racist space, well, if that's true, then the people at the conference and the organizers of the conference need to step up and repent publicly for their racism. Racism is a sin, right? Now, again, I know and a racist redefine the word racism, so it's a little bit tricky. But she's calling them racist. So you have to at least own that. Yes, she's calling me a racist. Is that true or false? You got to say yes or no. But if it's false, on the other hand, if, if she's not actually taking her life in her hands by coming and speaking to you, well, that's slander. You can't mm, say yeah. that I'm taking my life in my hands by talking to these people when you're not taking your life in your hands. You're implying that they're going to they're gonna hurt you physically. Uh, even if... I mean, so. That those are the only two options. So I, I, I don't understand then how these you know, prominent pastors have come out supporting Yuan and, and, and supporting this talk, and, and, and she's making these tweets. So if you agree with these tweets, and you agree with the, the conference is racist, the racist space, and that you know, Lauren Chandler is one of the organizers, and, and then she and the other organizers, if they are a racist organization, then these people need to say so explicitly. Yes, this, this, this conference is racist, is these are racist people that are that are putting placing Yuan's life in jeopardy? Is just own that, or you have to say, no, that's not true. But then you can't call Yuan a prophet of God who's being used greatly by God, who's speaking the truth to power. You you, you can't just be silent. <laughs> you got you got to say something here. Yeah. I, that's what I'm confused about. Is that there's not much wiggle room here? I think too many people are just kind of like that. And it's funny because one of the things she said, and I think it's very fair, 
She said, I was invited by these people. They invited me. They know who I am. They know what I believe. I, I said exactly what I always say in all my talks. Now, I agree with that, by the way. You know, if, if she did exactly what is she does, right? It's just yeah. what she does. This is her ministry. Mm-hmm. And so it's just strange to me that people either have to say we agree with you on or we disagree with you on or we agree on some things, other things, but you can't just be silent and think that she's not going to say these things. This is what she believes. So let's evaluate the truth of those claims, but not just be silent about them. Yeah, man, I think it, that's that's dead on. Did did it surprise you the support she got? Did it make you think, man, maybe critical theory is really spreading more through the evangelical world than you even thought, or did, was it just confirming what you already suspected? Uh, man, um, gosh. So you know, I I have a uh, an article I wrote because the pushback I always get when I talk about critical theory, I get two main. Uh, concerns. Uh, one of them I think is very fair, and one of them I think is not. It's, not, it's fair, but it's not. It's not true. The, the fair concern that I get um, is that look, you're speaking out against critical theory, but are you speaking out against racism? Because there is racism in the U.S. and it's a terrible thing. You know, you, you know, Nerva, you're, you're sitting here being talking about how as a kid people were making fun of you for being black. That's terrible. I'm I'm tearing up right now thinking about that. Yeah. That's messed up. And when I hear stories about my brothers and sisters in Christ who've experienced racism within the church, right, or even outside the church, whatever it is, that angers me. And I, I want to see that end, period. And when I read the history, I've read Ibram X. Kendi. I've read Jamar Tisby's Color of Compromise. I've read, uh, I'm reading, uh, man, I, I'm, I've read a lot of uh, books on these issues, Um I read a, a book on legal studies, critical race uh, theory, I, you know, and I read these stories of the history of the U.S. and it's horrifying. Uh, and so, I think it's fair to ask, say, Neil, we we share your concern about critical theory, but are you speaking out about racism too? And I want to be doing that. And so I try to do that in my articles and my talks. I always have a section on not just past racism but present racism. And are we speaking out against it? Are we are we saying this is a sin against God because people are made in God's image? They're creating God's image. You treat them as image bearers, and race is not a category. It's a fiction. So all that's a fair criticism. So if people feel like, um, you know, in all this criticism of critical theory, just make sure that you are not just brushing it under the rug, I totally agree. Yes. Amen. Please contact me and say, hey, could you mention this more? Yes, absolutely. But the other critique I get is that, well, this is just – uh, an invention. Oh, the cultural Marxists that are taking over, they're trying to destroy democracy and apple pie and baseball and it's all, it's all a conspiracy theory. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, yeah. People, people say that. People really believe it's all conspiracy theory and I, I just want to, I have an article called um, Critical Theory Within Evangelicalism that got a lot of it, some attention on social media and you can you know Google it and read it, but it has just, just a few examples. I mean, I've been collecting them for about a year now. Okay. has a few examples of, of just blatant critical theory within the church, and it's it's really bad. Um, again, again, the evangelical church. I'm not talking about, you know, mainline, um, you know, universalist Unitarians, and I'm talking about evangelical, professing evangelical Christians, you know, with huge followings. And so, yeah, so, so that, I think that, I, am I pessimistic or optimistic? Um, I have to say I, I'm pessimistic right now, 
because I and I'll tell you why. It's mainly because I think that we're being very polarized. I think what happens is we see this as a zero sum game. You know, we have our side and their side, and if we give an inch, if we admit that there's some problems on quote unquote our side, well then their side's going to just take advantage of it. You give them an inch, take a mile, and you know there's so much injustice in the world. We dare not say that these things are a problem. But man, it, I just I'm getting to the point where some of this is so blatantly false and dangerous, and the the way it's heading, it's not you can't confine critical theory uh, to you know you can't compartmentalize. We talked about this in the last in the last podcast. It's it's a worldview. Mm-hmm. It will swallow up your theology of the body, your theology of the cross, your theology of race, your. Th- Everything, or the theology, but everything that there's no area it does not touch. And I'm watching people that have, um, that, that, and I'm following them over the course of time and watching it erode their beliefs. And so, yeah, I, so I, I don't want to be a, um, you know, Debbie Downer. I don't want to be a, you know, a, a, you know, just a, a calling a, a Cassandra, always warning people. But I, um, yeah, I, I do think we need to, people that are sort of on the fence. Or even tempted, they're all you know. They they are concerned about justice issues, and they're worried about if they speak out against some of these critical theory uh, things that they're going to be giving ammunition to the all the haters out there. I just got to say, look, man, we got to stand up for the truth, and that's got to come first. I mean, I think Christians, we have to as Christians, we have to be devoted to um, unity. Unity in truth. We're devoted to true the unity that's produced by truth. But we're devoted to the truth that produces unity, and so we can't have one or the other. We got to have both, and we can't sacrifice one for the other. And so, uh, I mean, I just I hope some people are listening and thinking. I, I, you don't have to speak up and start shouting Marxist everybody. You don't have to do that. <laughs> I just think you got to stop pretending it's not a problem, and you have to start saying or or at least listening to people's concerns on the quote unquote other whatever side it is, whatever your side is. Whatever the other side is, listen to their concerns and weigh them against scripture. That's my only, that's my, I'm pretty safe saying that, right? Can I say that? Absolutely. Listen to their concerns and weigh them against scripture. I think that's a pretty good advice for everybody. So, so I don't good. know. Is that, am I being too wishy-washy? I think, I mean, some people are like, you're too wishy-washy. You need to come down harder. But I'm trying to, I'm trying to be gentle and charitable here. If I, and I'm trying, I'm always successful. I think you are. I think you're doing a great work. I mean, yeah, it's man. a difficult area, a su- subject sure. to tackle, and so you're you're killing it. I've read some of your articles, and they're always word centered and lining up with truth. So I say, keep at it. Let me end with the scripture here. It's Colossians three twelve. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Amen. Well, thanks, Neil, so much, man, for coming on the show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Nerva and Seth. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, man. And thank you guys for listening to the Free Mind Podcast. As always, would love for you to subscribe. And if you like in the podcast, give us that five star. And if not, uh, maybe just uh, give us a rating in your heart and uh, pray for us. (laughs) 
But uh, now we love to connect with you guys on Instagram, Free Mind FM, and on our uh, Facebook page is Free Mind Podcast FM. So any questions, any thoughts, love to hear them. And until next week, y'all have a good one. Peace.